The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guy, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Again, and join, joining me for the hour here is Axel Merck. So, Axel, you've done a number of spaces with, with me. I'm going to make this uh, an edited YouTube video uh, in a week or so. But for those who don't know who you are in the firm, just talk about how you got involved in markets, what inspired you to launch an investment firm, and what are you doing right now? How I got involved in the markets? Well, I was in diapers and I uh, heard about the stock market all the time. Um, my dad was in the business. I uh, picked up the phone on the October 87 crash. And uh, when I was at home, my dad was coming home. And uh, and there was a client who had told my dad not to hedge anything. And he said, yep, um, <laughs> you're screwed. I, I didn't say that. I was sick at the time. <laughs> but um, I, I heard the market every day. Um, I studied the markets in college uh, in those days, was very tech-driven, um, and uh, actually went on to a PhD program to, to try to dive into the markets for further, that I eventually dropped out. And I have to confess, for better or worse, I never worked for anybody else because I started my business back then. Um, had taken on some clients in college and then formalized it. Um, started in 94 back in Europe and then in Switzerland, actually. And then in 2001, took the business to the U.S. In 2005, it was, launched our first mutual fund. And these days, to kind of fast forward, we manage over a billion, much of it in the precious metal space. And whenever we try to move... Um, Beyond that, we're drawn back into it for better or worse. And I trust we'll talk about that. So we'll do precious metals, uh, stagflation these days as well. Uh, but we're really active in, in all markets. And we have a great team that's uh, both on the macro side, which I'm probably best known for, our currency side as well. And, and so we deal. And along the way, we... We touch base with lots of regulators, so we actually both SEC and CFTC regulated because we really deal in everything and anything, and um, and mostly just passionate about markets. And uh, I get motivated by the stupidity I see out there, and then I dive and into it and do something about it, uh, at least as far as investing is concerned. So I'm with you on being motivated by the stupidity out there. I, I keep using the term uneducated speculation, but I was texting a friend of mine earlier today saying the problem with what's going on with cryptocurrencies and the unwind of the uneducated speculation is that it's impacting everything else, right? Because everything, when one asset class has an extreme, you tend to not have it be isolated to just that asset class, which I also do want to talk about. But I didn't realize you had uh, some, some family uh, lineage, uh, Axel, with your father. When, when, what were some of the things that, looking back, your father uh, taught you or taught you or made you think about when it came to, to markets when you were a kid? Well, one of the things is, uh, without <laughs> going too much into detail, uh, some people, including I'm at risk of that sometimes, will get very sophisticated in the details. And some of the most su successful speculators, let me call them, are really black and white. Right? It's by yourself. And uh, who cares about the details of the yield curve or this or that? This is good. You buy it. This is bad. You sell. And uh, my dad was one of those guys. And uh, he uh, kind of, he happened to be, he was living in Switzerland at the time, but he was in New York at the October 87 crash. And he kind of whispered to somebody, it's okay that we open some champagne here because he was massively short that day. So he had some huge wins. Of course, we don't talk about the losses yet along the way. Um, but uh, yeah, I learned from him that you got it. 
act, right? You can't just talk. And if if that's that's one thing I've carried through, it's uh, talk is cheap, but you gotta you gotta put money where your mouth is if you have a conviction. Because if you have a debating club, um, you are sure to lose money. The other thing I learned is you got to do your own research. Um, if you if you just tag along what everybody else is telling you you are almost certain to lose money. And just fast forward to today, right? You should be excused to change your mind every day or every week. Uh, and so unless you have a framework to think about things. And um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, he's taught me a lot. He's taught me to be humble with the markets. <laughs> and uh, and I actually, I, I never worked, quote unquote, for him. Um, he was a strong personality. He passed away eight years ago by now. Um, and uh, I am somewhat not a weak personality either, and so I've always done my own thing. But it's it's been an interesting interface, an interesting journey with him over the years. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that. I often reference my father in in the eighties. He wrote a book called uh, Challenge of a Generation, which was about the eighty seven crash. And there's this video I keep on putting out clips on on Twitter of the of him teaching a bunch of uh, Merrill Lynch brokers in the mid late eighties. And there's this one bit where he says the only two questions that matter that are crucial are when and when, <laughs> when to buy and when to sell, yeah. right? Because you know if you're really going to be a trader and trying to make money, you're right. You got to kind of focus more on on those two questions more than uh, and try to try to make some kind of broader theory about where we're headed, right? It's kind of like where are we now? Where might we uh, skate to? So on, on that end, talk about taking action. Um, as we know, there are times in markets when you should take action. There are times in markets when you should not take action. And sometimes not taking action is a form of action, right? Because everyone always has the desire to want to do something. Um, for you, and this is separate from Merck Investments and and the precious metal side, which we'll talk about. For you, when you think about your own portfolio, where you yourself are invested in beyond the business, what helps you decide the kind of action to take to make you shift a particular asset allocation? Yeah, sure. And and yes, you mentioned a very important thing, right? Difference between a company and myself. Now it's very difficult, right? Company has my name and actually eat my own cooking and so forth. Uh, but still, in a company, you have a mandate. You do certain things, and then personal, you have your personal preferences. I but I actually do eat my own cooking, and so a lot of what I do is also what I do for for the business. Now that said. Um, I am married and have four kids, and my wife is not quite as much as enthusiastic about precious metals sometimes that I am at times. Um, and, and so it's ultimately about risk management. As uh, I, I wrote a book after the financial crisis because nobody was buying any financial products, and they, that's for my bucket list. And the, 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 the short version you can fit into a tweet, which is uh, – uh, you you spend less than you make, and the reason I say that is it's ultimately about risk management. Right? I bought. I live in Silicon Valley because I presume I love paying high California taxes, and moved here in two thousand one, but didn't buy until two thousand nine. And you may recall that yeah, after two thousand eight, prices in Silicon Valley had not tumbled, but they were a little softer. Now, our business is counter-cyclical, and so at the time, I could afford the risk to buy a house that was potentially an overpriced market, whereas in the years before that, I decided that these prices are ridiculous, and I'm building a business. I don't want to expose too much risk. So it's about risk management in, in that sense, and, and, and obviously, Silicon Valley real estate has continued to do um, do well. And by the way, in 2004, I, I sold some real estate in Southern California and stuffed that into the business. And because I thought the pricing was ridiculous. No, that wasn't ridiculous, but it continued obviously to skyrocket. And, and you, you can't kind of shed water, uh, shed tears for water under the bridge, but it's about risk management. And the same thing about the markets now, if you look at them, um, we can talk about them more, but uh, we do all this fancy research and saying, well, based on these metrics, we shouldn't have a recession. And my reaction to that has been, yeah, that sucks because the Fed needs to have a recession. Um, and the reason why recessions are relevant is because risk assets tend to do worse in recessions. And so that's why if you look in the current environment, um, I'm, I'm more invested than I was in 2008 because in 2008 I had sold all my stocks. And so I do still have some um, risk exposure here, but, um, but it's really in the context of a larger portfolio, luckily. Uh, and uh, and in 2008, I was very much concerned about the financial system as a whole. And whereas I do have lots of complaining to do these days, the plumbing of the the wheels aren't falling off as of yet or right now. And so 
in the long run, even if we have an inflationary environment on a normal level, risk assets might do just fine. And so I am substantially underinvested from where I would like to be in quote unquote normal periods, but we don't have normal periods. So I want to define uh, for a moment the word risk. So I think Buffett is the one who said that risk is not knowing what you're doing. Um, some and, and traditional finance, we know, would argue that risk is volatility. Um, how do you think of what risk actually is from not just, again, a, a personal allocation of, of investment standpoint, but as an entrepreneur, right? Because if you have to launch a particular strategy at a, at a cycle that doesn't favor it, uh, that's a risk that's completely out of your control that you have to take. Well, two completely separate topics and, and answers. Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me um, first answer the investor question. The, and as you know, we can't give specific investment advice, but what I always tell people is don't, if you can't sleep at night, you are over invested, right? If you have, then you have more risk than you should have. Um, all these models are crap, but if you, if, if you can't, if you get nervous at night, then you have too much risk in your portfolio. So that's that answer. But I actually have a very different philosophy about, um, being an entrepreneur. I happen to think those who start their own business, including myself, are actually far more risk averse than those having a nine to five job. And the reason I say that is I have thousands of clients, right? Investors in our funds. They don't all fire you all at once. You kind of hopefully get the message when they start firing you one by one. Whereas when you have a nine to five job, there's one boss you got, and one day he picks up the phone. Sorry, we have a job cuts across the board. Goodbye. It was nice that you were with us for 10 years or 20 years. So I've always felt that going the self-employment route, the entrepreneurial road, is actually less risky than the one. And and there are different stages in life when I think you can start a business. Um, I was fortunate enough to be in the, the pre-family stage because when, when you come out of college, um, you you don't have any dependence. You're used to living on the cheap. And so what can possibly go wrong? I have one of my four kids is a college dropout and is working on a second startup. She got nothing to lose and a lot to gain, right? When you're in the kind of middle of your life and you have a children, family, then, yeah, then sucks, right? Because you have a lot to risk. Then later, when you have built a cushion, um, then you can afford the risk of doing something. And so it depends on the stage in your own life, whether you want to take from an entrepreneurial point of view, take take a risk. I, as I indicated, right, I had some summer jobs many, many years ago, but I was lucky enough, and that's good and bad, that I, I never worked for, for any of the big shops around there. I'm curious, uh, Axel, how much of being entrepreneurial is really based on luck and timing of that, of that launch, right? So it's the wrong type of strategy for the cycle that you're in, but you don't know exactly where you are in the cycle until you're two to three years after, you know, the cycle's got some momentum. Um, what was the first strategy or first thing that first kind of vehicle that you launched um, with Merck Investments? <laughs> and, yeah. and, and what was the, what was the sort of initial reaction where we, in terms of the AUM growth? Well, the, the, um, I've had a 30 year startup. Um, my wife thinks I don't have a startup anymore. I, I still think of ourselves as a startup and uh, you do a lot of stupid things along the way. And you certainly don't. That's one of the reasons might be why you should work for a big company first, because you can make your mistakes elsewhere. So the, the first thing I did is, is, is all right, I, I wasn't. I, I was traveling around, uh, living in different places. But I started the business in Switzerland because I had gone to high school there, and and I started an offshore fund. And the reason I started an offshore fund is because, just from a regular point of view, Switzerland offshore was the cheapest way to do it. And I said, hey, I built a fantastic track record, and I will get all the money. It's going to just come flowing in. Well, guess what? When you publish your track record, the key thing you're getting is lots of sales calls of people who want to sell add-on services, but your investors are not going to line up. When you when you when you offer any service, you got to think about distribution. You got to think about your clients. And I had a lot to learn along those ways. Um, when I started the first mutual fund in 2005, um, one of the big incentives to have a good in um, distribution strategy was tremendously high fixed costs. A any of these public products have a very high cost to run there. They can be very attractive when, when they're large, but they're very expensive to run. And so then you really get your butt kicked and, and, and do everything. And there, by that time, I had luckily figured things out. But in the nineties, 
early 90s, I was really naive and and I learned a lot along the way, but um, it was a good idea that this I, I didn't have to feed too many mouths along the way. Um, and I was in, in some ways more of a lifestyle advisor as, as many are that you have enough to get by, but it's it's calling it a business might be a a tad premature. And so there are, there are different ways of going about it. I learned my lessons along the way. And by the way, some of the biggest lessons I've learned was during COVID, and that's really goes beyond the entrepreneurialism. It's about the people's management skills, right? That we all learned that anybody who is in a managerial role, that you have to spend more time with your staff to make sure they are okay. And because we've been around for a while, I have folks who are very young and some a little older, and they have all different challenges and phases in their lives and and you got to make sure that they're happy and i'm very proud to say i have had uh, just about no employee turnover in recent years and uh, i've taken this a step further i have to coach the employees of the service providers we work with because i have an interest that those guys don't quit when their bosses don't pay attention to them and so i've putting calls to to bosses of, of of more junior people that that we work with make sure telling them hey if you don't look after these folks um, they're going to leave and so it's it's really as i think most people will tell you that i've been in business a while uh it's the product is one thing but it's the people's management that that over time you learn and that that can turn a good business into a great business and i find that's something that a lot of people to your point underestimate um that whole conversation you know on the fixed cost point most people probably don't realize it costs somewhere between let's call it 200 to 250k depending upon your uh on your uh complexity of your strategies to just have a fund out to have yeah, it's like the, the rent right to keep that open in the absence of assets so being not through in the investment field is remarkably expensive and i would argue even more uncertain than investing for yourself because again you don't know what the reaction by your investors is going to be if you happen to launch in the exact wrong environment. And again, I'm talking from experience, as I'm sure you have too. Yep. Now, at some point, hopefully that'll change. Exactly. I mean, right. as, as I, I can't talk about products here too much, but um, one product I can yep. talk about is when we shut down. We once had an equity product uh, investing in the S&P 500 passively with a currency overlay. It's the was the best thing since sliced bread. One year, a 40% return. It was beating everything left and right. But I personally was the largest investor, and we couldn't communicate that strategy. We thought it was a great strategy, but our investors didn't. And at least they thought, well, what is this, right? It was too complicated a product. And, and so after two years, we shut it down again. And uh, it was uh, <laughs> it's nice to have a, a registered investment product just for yourself, pretty much. I mean, I had about 50% of the assets after, after two years. And, and so that wasn't exactly a, a winning proposition. So you got you to gotta cut your losses, lick your wounds, and, and move on. And as, as some of your listeners may be aware, right, most of these, these, these products fail. Um, and so you gotta have the stamina to to work through them and 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 then obviously cherish your winners along the way. But it's it's a brutal business. And one thing in this business is there is no copyright, right? If you have a successful product, um, some competitor is going to come in and slap a low expense ratio on it and and compete with you. And if you don't have a successful product, well, they won't come in, but it's, uh, you're stuck with it anyway. So it's it's a rather brutal space. Um, you got to be pretty suicidal to get into this business, but um, it somehow keeps us going. Yeah, no, that, I'm with you 100. I, I, I like emphasizing that point because most people don't realize the <clears throat> the challenge of the domain of the business of investment management. The business of investing management is supposed to just the investing. Well, sure. I mean, as uh, again, I, I don't want to talk too much about products here. We we did launch a stack. Yeah, I'm not talking ETF. about products. Yeah, yeah, we did launch a stagflation ETF. It was one of these these, these examples. Right. Uh, we we saw a threat out there and then rather than just sitting around and says, well, what the hell are you going to do about it? And then how do you design a product like this? What do you do? And, and, and so we, we looked at, well, what sort of things go up when inflation expectations go up? We obviously know the 1970s. And how do you how do you structure it? in a way that's simple enough so you can communicate it and, and so forth. But, but, but yes, we think uh, stagflation is a, is a real risk. And uh, to just expand on that for, for a moment, right, um, when you have uh, supply shocks are stagflationary uh, because you, you have both inflation go up and you have uh, unemployment potentially go up. And then what makes it worse is the reaction of policymakers that, that then try to, quote, unquote, help 
Um, and what they do is rather than fixing the supply issue, they, they boost demand, which just exacerbates these problems. Um, and, and so it's one of the reasons why uh, when you're hit with a supply shock, the, the ripple effects can last for years um, because the, the fixes are often worse than the cure. And then um, Bernanke in his recent book, he, he wrote about, well, if you had 8% inflation a year, if, it, if you knew it was 8% inflation a year, it wouldn't be as much of a problem because you can plan around it. But that's not how in high inflation works. Uh, it, it, it gyrates, right? And, and then you, it, it, you have unemployment go up, then inflation goes down, then, then, the, then you think you're through it, um, you ease policy again, then it, it, it goes up again. In the meantime, the policymakers are, are fixing things. Um, one thing that's just, just in the news uh, in, in Germany, um, they, they lowered gas taxes starting in June by about a dollar a gallon. Um, and obviously that boosts demand. And so guess what? Um, the price, the, the, the follow through isn't that the, the, the gas was a dollar cheaper a gallon. And, and so now they're going to have an antitrust investigation, which could potentially lead to, to price controls, right? And so you, you open this can of worms where you make things worse. And, and of course, in the US, we, we have plenty of our own things here to, to worry about by, by providing, giving huge stimulus checks. Obviously, um, people lost their jobs to no fault of their own, but we overstimulate the economy and, and we end up with a big mess. And now we, we try to fix it with probably by making it worse. Well, the, I think we're thinking too short term. The fundamental problem in the market is that we have two job openings for every job seeker. That is the problem in the market. Unless and until that is fixed, we're going to have a mess in our hands. And we're working on it, right? I mean, we, we have hiring freezes and, and announced in some places and so forth. But uh, Larry Summers has, has got it head on, right? We, and, and that's one of the reasons why I said earlier um, that not everything points to recession is a problem. We need to slow this economy further. And that means the Fed needs to be tougher than it's priced in. And obviously, that, that creates more instability in the market. Um, and then we already hear that there's going to be the September pause, and, and, and maybe they're not going to have it. But the moment they have a pause, well, at some point, the year-over-year comparisons are going to look better. And people are going to have a sigh of relief. And then uh, because we've had a rough ride, the Fed says, okay, let's take a break and keep the breath. Uh, policy acts with a long lag. Uh, and, and, and so numbers might get better on a year-over-year comparison. And then two, three months later, we get again whacked with some really bad number. And it says, oh, my God, we haven't done enough. And it's that sort of instability that 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 is going to be so gut-wrenching. And, and so um, that's why, sure, I mean, if you're a technician and you think you can time these markets based on a daily basis, um, be my guest. And by the way, I, I'm not suggesting anybody should have any particular investment process. Any investment process is good. Um, but not having an investment process is is a problem. Yeah, and by the way, on that, on that timing point, it's like even if you could time it, I'm not sure what what you would, the success rate would be. And I, I know this again, talking from experience with this, because it's not just about timing equities. It's what are you timing against it, which, you know, often or not tends to be treasuries. So historically is kind of the better place to be. And it's just not, well, it's just not working. And, and the uh, worst of that is most negative views on the market have a negative carry. And so anybody who's actually put their money where their mouth is shorting a lot of stuff is expensive unless you got the timing right. Right. I mean, many people thought, Bonds are overvalued for an extended period. Well, guess what? Bonds have sell, sold up dramatically. And with hindsight, there will be a small group of people who got the timing right. But if you have been shorting bonds for years, you, you, you bled to death, right? Um, and, and so it's, it's, these things are much easier said than done. It's one of the reasons why the folks who are long only, um, they, they write this out, right? I mean, there's going to be a day where the S&P is going to be a new all-time high. Um, and if you're not levered, you can hold through that. It, it, it's a much more interesting conversation to go short, but actually doing it is 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 much much tougher. And it's it's one of the reasons I say, hey, whatever portfolio allocation you have, you've got to be able to sleep with at night, um, because you've got to be able to to stomach the volatility. And obviously, if you if you have some pessimistic view when everybody else is pessimistic, well, insurance is not expensive then, right? And and how are you going to work through that? And and so it's a Putting putting action to where a word is, is is not always as easy as it sounds. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. 
Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. No, and, I, and I'm glad you mentioned that because everyone always uses these terms like zoom out or they seem to conveniently forget that energy has been on a relative uh, bear market stretch you know, for a decade. Now everyone's super bullish on energy. And to your point, unless you really got in probably close to the negative 40 oil print, uh, you've missed a lot of a lot of the initial gains on that, even though momentum is still, still going there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just how many fracking pitches have you got of late, right? I mean, nobody invests in this stuff uh, because these 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 limits. I'm not. It's not investment advice, right? I'm not suggesting you should go out and do it. But but it's it's the stuff that's that's profitable right now is not always the things that that people have yet to. And then right now we, of course, in this, you mentioned earlier, the carnage in the crypto space, right? There's, of course, a reason people have invested in that space is because they felt they got screwed. Um, and, and so they're looking for other ways. So they invest in meme stocks, they invest in crypto, they invest in this and that. And 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 now there's some reckoning in, in some of those, those areas. Uh, and at the when all is said and done, I'm sure that in a few years, um, there's going to be some valuable opportunity in some of these spaces. I sometimes... Right, com- uh, compare Bitcoin to Netscape. The internet is still around, but Netscape is not. And and but in the meantime, there there's going to be a lot of blood on the street. And I think that the issue, Axel, is that a lot of people don't spend the the necessary ten thousand hours, right? That is like an estimate for how do you become an expert in any domain, right? People don't spend the ten thousand hours to really understand what it is they're investing in. I always make this point that they'd rather look at a cat video than read a prospectus. Well, let me give you an example of I, I love going to the sources. So uh, during the Eurozone debt crisis, um, Draghi was quoted in the news and said, that's odd. Um, give me uh, give me the original. And uh, it turns out the original was in German in a newspaper that didn't have that article online. Um, and uh, then my analyst finally gave it to me and I speak German. And I said, that does not match the English version it's, it says something different and i felt strongly enough that i i sent i think a tweet to tom Keane, and uh, i was on bloomberg radio a few minutes later um explaining the difference and and so to somebody who doesn't who is not a monetary policy buff as much as i am probably could have cared less but to me it was a world of difference um, of what it means and so uh, if if you just read the media coverage of something um it's not the same as going to the sources and actually making up your own mind. And if if nothing else, what I tell myself is I, I have no guarantee that I'm right, but there is some diversification that comes with that by by having your own interpretation of things and, and not going along with what the market is saying all the time. All right. So speaking about the monetary side, and everybody that's here, please make sure you follow Axel Merck, who's one of my favorites here on on Twitter with these spaces that I do with with him and you know on behalf of his firm as well. Um so, so I named this space the the Fed's the last great bubble, and I started using that term, gosh, probably back in 2011, 2012. And obviously, I was way early in the idea that uh, that bubble would burst with QE3. But um, I, I want you to talk about the progression of how that bubble got bigger and bigger. Uh, did it really start? I'll tell you where I'm, where I'm going with that. A lot of people will say the great financial crisis was the marker where everything started really going downhill. I can make a case that it really started in 99. But but talk through that dynamic a bit. Yeah, I got irked enough in 2004 about it that I start, started my first public product in 2005 because I, I've been talking about how things are going to blow up at some point. And uh, so I started worrying about the issues in the housing market and other things in 2004, 2005, and actually did something about it. But let me first address the broader point of the premise about the bubble and so forth. The, the one reason why I'm the boring guy out there is because I'm a big believer in can kicking. Not that I love the can kicking, but the amazing ability of policymakers to kick the can down the road. Um, a lot of folks who, who read and listen to doomsday scenarios, they talk about the great reset or this or that. Well, that's bullshit. And the reason that's bullshit is because there's always a day after. Um, if you look at Latin America, for example, um, 
they, they've had their bubbles burst many times over, but life continues, right? It, and it changes. And then people start embracing it, right? Nowadays, um, if you're in your mid-60s, you're still working and you think you're a productive member of society. Well, 40 years ago, you retired at that age, and that was the greatest achievement in life. Whereas, uh, Or just think about women in, in, in the family, right? Uh, if you tell a woman, hey, why you should be at home, you're going to get slapped in the face. Whereas in the 1950s, it, you didn't need to work. There was no need for that. There was a different role. So society embraces change. And as central banks are eroding purchasing power of the currency, um, we, we, we are in this rat race and we will adapt and, and find new virtue in, in, this, in this way that we change things. Um, in the meantime, of course, people get disenchanted. I talked about the rise of populism way before Donald Trump was elected. He is a symptom of what the central banks have done to us. Uh, and and uh, because when people get upset, they, they, want, they want change and they'll be veering towards populism. So to me, this is kind of, this is a very broad issue where your society is, is, is at risk of disintegrating when you push things too hard and uh, and when has it started well if you want to go back it started with the introduction of the federal reserve or or worse uh, it started in 1930s when when the gse fannie and freddie were created to to create this ponzi scheme that then then blew up 80 years later in in the housing bubble um and and so you can start at various places but obviously if, if something takes 80 years to blow up maybe it isn't a ponzi scheme right um there are there are many, many challenges that that we have to deal with, and the question is, what did you invest? Right? If you if you said in nineteen thirties, well, this is not going to work so great for the housing market eighty years down the road. Well, there there, there was no eighty year futures that you could have bought, right? And so again, it's a question of timing. Um, when do these things go bad? But it's interesting because you know the the original purpose of the Fed was to intervene, right, to try to help mitigate the risk of bank runs and. And help for a more efficient type of system. So they've always been in the market. And you can argue that that's actually needed to some extent. I mean, anybody that's in the crypto space will argue otherwise until they actually see what's going on in their accounts with the last you know several days here, right? That there's there are these issues that happen with exchanges. There's liquidity problems. But but at what point in history did the Fed go too far? Where they started really you know kind of like that old expression: you give a give a man an inch, and right away they think they're a ruler. What what was the inch for them that really got to the point where they started becoming really really involved in markets? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So... How do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Oh, goodness. Oh, I don't know, 1914 or whatever it was. I mean, I'd say the... <laughs> or 17, when, 97. Um, the, when you have power, you always are tempted to do more. What I mean, to... Rather sidestepping that question, I recently read Bernanke's new book. If it's an important book to read because Bernanke continues to have influence and probably wants to have another job, probably as a regulator, maybe treasury secretary, it's also incredible torture to 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 read. Um, he firmly believes that you can do anything to justify maximum employment. Um, that that is more important than efficient capital allocation. And he uses fancy words, but he basically. Um, once the Soviet Union, there we had full employment, right? Full employment is the most important thing that's out there. And so this is the slippery slope. And there were many, many things. One of the, the in, in our generation, one of the worst things that happened was the purchase of mortgage-backed securities um, after 2008. That started the slippery road from where we have gone and introduced all these new policies rather than just dealing with treasuries, right? If you accept that the Fed as its its core function, well, uh, and, and many, many don't, but if you accept it as a core function, they should not be stepping on political turf. And, and mortgage-backed securities, you're allocating credit to a specific sector. Now, if you look at Bernanke's book, he takes that as a baseline and everything that has happened since 
and just thinks about what additional tools can we have and 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 how can we maybe cooperate with government or this or that and and then he's surprised that there is political a backlash to that well if you meddle on the turf of elected politicians guess what it's going to backfire and and so the the one thing I said uh, since 2008, and I still think that's the, the one thing that the Fed sh- and anybody, not just the Fed, should be focusing on, is that the best short-term policy may be a good long-term policy. And some people say that's a platitude, but but it's not. You cannot just do crisis fighting after crisis fighting after crisis fighting. And uh, the, the other thing I said in the financial crisis is that you cannot prevent the stupidity of any one person. The role of the regulator is to prevent that your stupidity is wrecking the financial system as a whole. And those are very basic principles. But if you were to look at the financial reforms that have taken place since 2008 and and just have those two tests, um, especially the the, the latter one, uh, it's not there, right? We we, we added on a a boatload of of new regulation and... uh, and it's uh, we've destroyed liquidity. We've gotten now liquidity that's only skin deep. We've we've misaligned incentives, and it's. Uh, um, but at the same time, right? We can complain about it all the time. But in the meantime, you need to make a living, and uh, if you are invest in the markets, you've got to deal with it somehow. What's what's happening now, though, with the Federal Reserve raising rates? Um, many of the things that have happened don't work anymore. And if I can still rant on you a little bit longer. One of the biggest things when you had a 10-year bull market was that you invested according to your political conviction. Hey, why not invest in green? Because everything goes up, so I might as well invest in my pet project. Uh, and and so now, with the tide going out and people swimming naked, um, it's going to take a long time until re- people realize that allocating capital is, is not throwing money after your pet project, but it's actually thinking about what, what might be profitable. So I think that's, that's an interesting point about people investing based on their political belief, because that wasn't always the case. I don't know if it's a function of social media that enables that, or it's simply a function of there being too much liquidity, so people uh, create almost a group identity when it comes to what they're investing in. Um, it's, it's a function of the, of the liquidity, I think, because the, the, the one thing that the moment the Federal Reserve started meddling in the credit allocation process, efficient capital allocation is out of the window, and you just chase whatever the, the central bank does. And and that's a huge, huge problem. Um, now, Bernanke is arguing that, yeah, maybe it's increased employment. Well, it's if, if you don't have efficient market allocation, you're going to create dislocations in the markets. It's, it's a, and, and we see that play out now, right? The markets are trying to come to terms um, with an environment where the Fed doesn't have the luxury anymore to, to just foam the runway um, to make everybody feel happy, and and they're trying to have this 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 cliff walk where so the credit spreads don't blow out, and and they haven't blown out yet, um, and and so they will continue to push um, and think about their their inflation mandate until the wheels are risk falling off, in which case they'll put out the firehouse again. I, okay, so so let, let's go with that a little bit. The, the putting out the fire because this seems like a a, a, a nuclear accident the way this is playing out right because they're trying to fight inflation by raising rates on the short end they are still way away from where they should be and we all know that you do it too sharply you're going to conceivably cause an over leveraged margin call type of crash everywhere which could in and, of, in and of itself create a depression or you the fed maybe hopes to buy time the supply chain issues get resolved with just days and you kind of raise rates incrementally and hopefully time catches up to you. So inflation, to your point, year over year ends up looking a lot worse. Um, but you're not going to have a, a situation where prices go back down, right? You'll slow down the rate of inflation, but I I, I don't know. I mean, do you see that there could be a scenario where the price of food actually starts dropping again and, and, and things that are at the retail store outside of discounts start dropping again? It, it seems a little bit uh, hard to imagine you end up having outright de- deflationary behavior. Well, a few things here. So, so first of all, of course, food prices are volatile, so they can move up and down. The just a as a kind of brief macro thing here, right? The f- central banks focus on core inflation historically and cut out all this other stuff because, in quote unquote normal times, that's a way to manage policy. The headline inflation that includes food and energy, that's where you see supply shocks, and in a stagflationary environment, that stuff becomes incredibly important. And even some of the folks from the Fed don't fully understand that. So you cannot shrug that stuff off. Um, 
the, the and the, the other big big mistake at the fed is they do exactly what you said they do they said okay let's tighten me a little bit let's buy some time and look well the problem is that there's they have unleashed instability in the system and it doesn't work right they they need to they need to be more forceful and they can't just say okay let's wait a little bit until it comes down a little bit and then then everything is going to be fine well no not everything is not fine in the meantime, they have this other end of the spectrum, right? Uh, you talk about leveraging the system. Actually, many investors are, uh, are less leveraged than they have been. One of the things we talked about internally in, in our company the last year is, well, how are these, these risk parity approaches working? I don't know whether you've had sessions on those. You may want to have some guests on that. We're not the expert on it. But one of the things we, we uh, just uh, did some analysis on is, Risk parity is gonna gonna break down when inflation is high, when inflation is above about three percent or four percent. And uh, if you look at these risk parity strategies, they have been completely clobbered. Um, they, they haven't worked. And 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 so that's the thing that's been out of the golden rule, and and it's it's all the traditional stuff that's been working is not working anymore. And since a lot of money is in these spaces, the the the, the torture to get through this where where people realize that the old ways don't work and they have to find new ways of investing. It's a process, right? It's a process and that's going to be volatility in the market. In the meantime, the thing that the Fed is concerned about and central banks around the world is credit spreads. Uh, at this stage, rates have been moving universally higher, but we haven't seen the, the big blow up at the, at the bottom end of the credit spectrum. And until we see that, the Federal Reserve is just going to keep pushing because they do need to slow down the economy into into a recession. But I think part of the reason why those spreads have not blown out is that a lot of these poor quality junk debt type of issuances, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Axel, but a lot of them are in the resource and mining space because they're very levered entities. You, you have to right, but I'm not just talking about the U.S. If you look at the pick right. spreads in Europe, for example, I mean, Italy – uh, and and that that fun stuff, right? Um, the 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 yields have moved higher, and they have been moving. That maybe let's talk about that here for a moment, right? The, the yields have been moving disproportionately higher in Italy versus the German bonds, but what hasn't changed is the correlation, right? What the yields moving higher is no problem, but what you don't want to have in in the eurozone is you don't want to have um, a flight into the bonds and a flight flight out of the Italian debt. Um, that creates breakup <clears throat> risk and so forth. And so those sort of warning signals of the second order, if you want to call them, haven't flashed. And and so similarly in the U.S., um, sure, um, in the natural resource sector, that, that hasn't blown out. And we have plenty of issues that kind of below the surface. But uh, we can take the, the carnage in the crypto space, right? That's similar to the 2000 bubble bursting. Uh, the reason why the 2000 bubble bursting didn't cause a quote-unquote systemic risk is because that risk was widely spread. Now, obviously, there are plenty of, of levered play in the crypto space, but if they go bust, it doesn't cause a meltdown of the system. Um, if you, The Federal Reserve is, is – is, they can tell you they care about the, the little man on the street. The Federal Reserve cares about the banking system being intact. Um, that's that's their mission in life. And, uh, and so the crypto space blowing up doesn't the financial system, and therefore, they don't care too much about it. Well, Larry Summers says they need a regime change, and I guess that means they need to get rid of Powell. Um, he doesn't say that. That's my interpretation of that. Um, the Let's talk about that just for a moment, right? We, and many of your guests, uh, talk about um, the, the five-year, five-year inflation expectations, long-term inflation expectations. Nobody in their dog knows what inflation will be in five or 10 years from now. You and I don't know it either. But And so what these longer-term inflation expectations mean is their reflection of the market's confidence that the Fed got this. And the very concerning sign is that those metrics have been moving higher. A University of Michigan just uh, has some metrics there that there is a risk that inflation expectations go out of whack. And if and when they do, we have far more serious problems in our hands than, than maybe the, the S&P dropping here 2% or 3% in, in, in a day. Um, because then you, you have a real problem. And, and the Federal Reserve is slowly waking up to that. The big problem is, of course, that the Federal Reserve is, is married to this super idiotic framework of backward-looking inflation averaging, which they at least are de-emphasizing um, 
but they they got it they got to come up with a, a a new idea that they actually people have confidence that that no um, it is not about this time is different um, low unemployment numbers are never a problem and we can push until inflation is a real problem they need to they need to get serious with some of these things and uh, yeah, uh, Powell is a lawyer he he loves his comedies and whatnot. And he doesn't doesn't get these markets, and he's in this camp, as you mentioned earlier, right? That um, they're going to do things a step at a time, and and look slowly and surely how things go. It's like you amputate, you don't amputate a leg by starting with a big toe. It just doesn't work. I'm glad you made that point that um, we will have bigger things to worry about than the value of the S and P day to day. Because I've made this point myself that you know I don't think people have thought through the implications of. 60-40, right? 60% stocks, 40% bonds. I've thought through the implication of what that means if it's truly dead. Because when you're in a highly levered system, you're talking about a double whammy of higher interest expense if rates keep going higher at this kind of pace, combined with lower tax receipts because you're going to have unemployment pick up because capital gains tax receipts are going to be a, uh, a lot lower. Um, so how do you think about that from the standpoint of, you know, not just deflation, but this idea that maybe if everyone keeps saying 60-40 is dead, uh, that that's almost like an end-of-the-world bet you can't bet on? Well, let me answer a question you asked earlier that's related to, to starting your own business. The best investment you can possibly ever make is in yourself because you are an income-generating machinery that you have control over, right? You don't have control over what the and, – and by the way, I – I read uh, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations the other day, and uh, I encourage everybody to do it. If you have an extra, I think, 50 hours or so with the audiobook or, or longer, it's uh, incredible and it's incredibly boring read. But um, he actually, uh, this was before we had today's markets, of course, but he's very critical of, of some of these stockholder corporations and saying, how on earth can you entrust your markets to a few directors and think that they're going to look after your money properly? Um, and he lashes out at just about everybody in the world and every constituents, not just in, in, in the financial markets. But um, it's a, you got to think about, uh, and then people say, oh, you, you buy the index and, and therefore you're going to beat everybody. Um, I, in the 90s, I had a discussion um, with, uh, um, with, with William Sharp. And uh, he said, oh, don't worry. I said, you can't kind of chicken, there's a chicken egg problem. You can't invest in the index because it's the index. You've got to, got to do your fundamental work. And he says, oh, don't worry about it. It's a, such a small segment in the market that does index investing that you don't have any distortions. Um, and, and so obviously we've gone way, way beyond that in, in recent decades from that. Um, people will have to do their homework again. And you, it's, we preach investing in uncorrelated assets, but again, it's not so easy, right? I mean, we don't talk about it too much today, today here, but the gold has a low correlation to other things. Um, but many alternatives, like what would have a long coll low correlation are long short strategies. But as we all know, you can lose both on the long and the short side um, with a long short strategy. So there is no, there is no easy answer to, to, to any of this. Um, and ultimately, what you can do is you can have a framework. You can be conservative so that you can stick to it. And then you try to come up with other revenue sources so that you're not dependent on any one of them. Yeah, no, I think that income diversification is in some ways, if not many ways, more important than, than portfolio diversification. Right? Because that, to your point, is at least somewhat in your control, whereas the outcome in markets in any single day, nobody really knows. Yeah, and and that's it's one thing, right? Especially in the stagflation environment, rental income tends to be one of the better sources because rents tend to increase um, as as inflation continues to push higher. It's one of the few things that does well. Um, but uh, fear not, then your local municipality is going to come with rent control or whatever it is, right? So there's, there's and and that's one of the big issues since two thousand eight. If you did the quote unquote right thing, you still lost money because the big bazooka would come in and whack you. Right. And, and that's, that's scared away so many people. And that's why they hunker down in a, in a 60, 40 portfolio or whatever it may be. Now, um, if interest rates really move higher, you might actually get a little bit of nominal yield on, uh, return on, on your cash. And then hunkering down in cash is, is not necessarily a bad thing. I'm sitting on quite a bit of cash. Um, I sold a piece of real estate in, uh, in January at Lake Tahoe. 
Um, maybe the peak of the market was six months earlier, um, but um, it was just uh, incredible how much these properties had had appreciated. wasn't spending any time there, um, and we were renting it with Airbnb. It became a pain in the butt because too many rules, and so we sold the place. And uh, um, and uh, much of that is sitting in cash, and it's uh, it's losing. Uh, because of inflation, but at the same time, at least it's not down twenty percent because of the S and P. I want to uh, focus on the term "moral hazard" for a bit here because that was a term everyone was using post Great Financial Crisis. There was this tremendous moral hazard with the Fed and the government bailing out AIG and all these banks. Um, and it seems to me that there's maybe another potential moral hazard that's looming here, which is that at some point, if the Fed uh, really starts to get ultra nervous they're probably going to have to do some degree of yield curve control, similar to what you're seeing with Japan. And we see the reaction by the end as the Bank of Japan tries to control long rates. Um, I mentioned that in the framework of a moral hazard because it seems to me that there's a really no way out of this in the sense that if the Fed tries to control rates, uh, well, you're going to have the dollar collapse that might be even more inflationary. And if you try to control long rates, well, then you're going to starve the federal, uh, the the U.S. government of uh, of uh, or at least not be able to starve them of, of further spending, right? Because you're going to just kind of encourage more reckless stimulus. So how you know? I know you talked about this idea that there's there's no real end game here for the Fed, and we know that they can keep on creatively preventing creative destruction. But how do you this end up playing out? Because it seems like there's no good options at all here. Well, if there's something really stupid, then yes, things can blow up. I mean, yield curve control is one of the dumbest ideas that are out there. And we've, we've had that, obviously, with Operation Twist and whatever the Fed has, has come up with. Um, but all that work, Operation Twist and that, that yield curve control light, if you want to call it, worked because there's, there was confidence in the Fed. Uh, the problem with, um, with yield curve control is it's, it builds a red line. And red lines in Japan work because there's no market, right? There's zero liquidity in these markets. I'm sure they can keep the yields. In, in the U.S., you have substitutions, right? You buy a German bond instead of a, uh, of a, uh, a treasury bond. And uh, they are obviously not the same, but the, 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 they are equivalent in some ways in that it's the same sort of riskiness looks for these sort of um, safe havens, and which means you have literally trillions out there that the Fed is is simply zipping with a straw from the ocean. They cannot, they cannot maintain yield curve control. They, they, the further you go out in the yield curve, the more difficult it is. And it works if you can talk down the markets, but it doesn't work when when the confidence in the Fed is at risk. So it works um, in a in a normal environment. It might work, but not when you most need it. And and so and if the Fed does go down the road of doing something that's stupid. Yes, then then they can really have egg on their face when when these red lines get broken, and so that's the, the more red lines you have, the more your risk of of damaging your own credibility. And uh, and I'm not suggesting when I said, yeah, well, we can push the can down the road; it will work forever, right? But it, there are consequences. The only thing I'm saying is that when things do crash, there will be a day after. And the other thing I say is that people say, oh, we got to go back to the gold standard or something like that. Well. We've moved the last hundred years further and further away from it. We're going to go at an accelerating path further away from it because at the core, to get something like the gold standard, um, you need to have fiscal discipline. And we don't. We've learned in the pandemic that it's easy to spend trillions. Well, those lessons will not be forgotten. And, and so the political forces will, will dole out more money and the Federal Reserve is going to be there to finance that. And in the meantime, they, they have to deal with the unintended consequences and create a bigger mess. I just wonder how much we can survive with that possibility, right? Because everyone's always in their own echo chamber. So I, I put out that poll, um, I think a couple of days ago, I said, you know, who's most to blame for inflation? And the choices were Powell, uh, Biden, and then the voters. And it was like a third, a third, a third. Right. Biden was most responsible for inflation. Powell, but yeah, you know, I mean, really, I'm going. It's it's ultimately us. It's the voters who are responsible because we're the ones that are also voting in these these clowns to do all this nonsense that that they're doing. Um, uh, you talk about populism. It, it seems to me that we have the seeds for some really nasty societal upheaval if this continues. Because how will five higher food prices like this? How how can uh, everyone be looking at all these influencers on Instagram with millions of dollars and are showing off their uh, fancy lifestyles while everyone else is struggling. 
Yeah, well, first on the on the politicization, uh, somebody posted the other day on Twitter that oh, even CNN picks up on the topic of inflation, and and I said, huh, let me do my normal thing. Let's look at how often is inflation mentioned on Fox and on CNN, and uh, then I expanded it to MSNBC and Fox Business. So sure enough, Fox News had inflation, I think something like uh, twenty five times mentioned. CNN had eight times uh, inflation. MSNBC had it once. Um, so there was one mentioning of inflation on the entire site. Um, and uh, the context is not even appropriate for this venue to, to mention in which inflation was mentioned. Um, and, and so unfortunately, it's become completely politicized. And uh, whereas it's a real problem that, that affects everybody. Whereas apparently on MSNBC, inflation doesn't exist because they don't talk about it. Now, Fox Business at the most, because that's a business channel. And, and obviously, if you're interested in, in, in the markets, um, then, yes, inflation is certainly more, more relevant. But, uh, yeah, these are – but what, what really matters is how voters are feeling. And the voters are not happy. Um, and, and it comes down to that the politically – there is no politically attractive solution to inflation. I mean, you can think of Biden what you want. But when he ran for president, inflation was not on the mind of the Democrats, right? I mean, we can argue all we want that the current programs don't fix it, and I would agree with that. But it was certainly not part of the agenda back then. And and, and it shows, of course, right? Um, the Federal Reserve wasn't equipped for that. Nobody was. And that's part of the reason why these guys then get voted out of office, because you need new ideas. Um, and uh, and by the way, it's not just left and right. In Australia, it was the opposite, right? In Australia, the conservatives got kicked out of office because um, people didn't like inflation. Guess what? And the guys who were in power were the conservatives. So it's it's not like one party owns um, this or that. Uh, in, I mentioned the the potential price controls in Germany. Well, it's the it's the freaking liberals that are quasi liberal in, in Germany is more libertarian that that introduced these sort of concepts that have led to that. So policymakers throughout the world just have incentives lined up to do really, really stupid things. It doesn't really matter whether they're on the left or on the right. Um, and, uh, and as a result, when I'm on, on social media, I'm an equal opportunity offender. It's not like the policies on one side tend to be great and the other ones suck. Yeah, you, you and I are the same. I always rant that you know, they both suck, right? Sure. No, great question. And uh, if we have another two hours, I'll answer it. Um, the, uh, the, 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 let me just give the very top level view. I, I think that there are generally three types of gold investors. There's the investor who loves gold because of diversification benefits. Over the long run, correlation to equities is just about zero. It doesn't mean it's always zero. It's sometimes positively and sometimes negatively correlated. Then there is the, the folks who are worried about the erosion of the purchasing power. And I'll talk about that more in a second. And then the third one is the speculator that loves to jump on a trend. And those speculators have gone more towards the meme stocks and the crypto space. They're less there in the gold space right now, but they'll jump back on it if there was a, a major move one way or the other. Um, on the inflation side, one thing we like to look at is, I, I would first of all, I say, yes, the Fed needs to raise rates worried about the short-term inflation, but the price of gold tends to be more correlated to longer-term inflation expectations. And uh, earlier today, I, I tweeted the, um, I actually haven't tweeted the correlation to gold, but the, the real interest rates, how they're moving based on a 10-year basis. And so there have been some significant headwinds there as real interest rates have been moving higher. Um, the Because just like anything else, right, it's a, you, you look at the discounted future value of, of something. And uh, when cash pays you something in the long run you might want to own cash when you when there is financial repression when there's financial repression then this brick that doesn't pay you any interest uh might be worth holding and and so um right now real interest rates on a 10-year basis have moved up to 50 basis points they were negative before um and so the 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 question is is that sustainable how far is going to go up and then at some point it has to go down again um the uh when i look at the flows that we have um, for, for what we do, um, people think that, um, yeah, we have late cycle and late cycle gold might be doing okay because the Fed might be overdoing it. Um, and so that's, uh, um, but that's again a, a broader discussion for another day. We will hit on some of this, by the way, at five Eastern. So those are joining, I'm going to be doing another uh, space sponsored by Merck Investments. Axel's going to be there. Also, uh, Peter Bookfar, uh, who many of you have also seen on financial media, is going to be there. So it should be a good conversation. We'll touch on. A lot of different areas beyond what you've heard here. Uh, everybody, please make sure you follow Axel Merck. 
legitimately one of the best out there. And hopefully we will see you at 5 Eastern. Thank you, Axel. Yep. Thanks so much. Have a great run, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.